Welcome to Free Thoughts, a podcast about libertarianism and the ideas that influence it. Free Thoughts is a project of the Cato Institute's libertarianism.org. I'm Aaron Powell, editor of libertarianism.org and a research fellow at the Cato Institute. And I'm Trevor Burris, a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Should we have limits on who can enter this country? Should we exclude certain kinds of people or only let in a certain number? Such questions of immigration policy provoke much debate, anger, and often ugly politics. And immigration isn't just a matter of policy, of what effects immigrants have on America's economic outlook. Immigration raises important moral issues too and impacts basic human rights. Joining us to discuss immigration today is our colleague Alex Narasta, an immigration policy analyst here at the Cato Institute. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Alex. Thanks for having me. So before we get into policy of immigration or what we ought to do and how we ought to think about it today, maybe you can fill us in a bit on how the United States has dealt with immigration in the past. How, how have we approached this question? Have our policies looked the same as they do today for most of our history or are they quite different? Yeah, so uh, immigration policy has changed quite a bit throughout American history. And you can go all the way back to the uh, founding colonies uh, pre-Revolutionary War to get some sense of that. States and colonies had some immigration restrictions. You know, they had restrictions on paupers coming in, for instance. They made uh, sh certain ships buy bonds for immigrants. So if the immigrant came and went on charity, the ship owner would have to – who was responsible for bringing that person over would forfeit that bond. But with the founding of the United States and the Constitution, the first immigration law passed in 1790 was essentially an open borders law. And the only restrictions on it were who could naturalize and when. Um, and I think it's important to realize at that time there were no restrictions on gender, on wealth, on religion or on anything – or on ethnicity with the exception that only white people were allowed to naturalize. So that's okay. – so from our perspective, it's pretty hideous yeah. uh, and backwards. From the perspective of from that time, it was pretty progressive. Now, that, that was rectified with the, um, the, the 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. uh, later on in the 1860s. So that sort of went through to that time. But in terms of restrictions on who could come, how many people could come, where they could come from, there were absolutely no federal restrictions of any kind. Does um, the constitution prior to amendments say anything about immigration? So it doesn't say um, anything about um, – what it does have is a section on uniform rules of naturalization. So the federal government can make those. It takes that power away from the states as part of the compromise. Um, interestingly, I think in the section where it talks about the limiting of the slave trade in 1808, it says no laws restricting migration or restricting the importations of slaves shall be made before 1808. Yep. Um, what's interesting though is in the declaration, they do mention the word migration as being one of the uh, the rights that uh, King George sort of interfered with was the movement of Englishmen to the colonies. So they definitely knew what the word meant and they used it in the same way we do today. So we get to um, 14th Amendment and then sort of the wave of immigration I think was probably the highest in the, in the latter part of the 19th century I would imagine. Yeah, latter part of the 19th century, early 20th century, the percentage of people coming in every year was a little bit greater than 1 percent of the total population of the country annually. Hmm. To give you an example, that's about three times greater than what it is today in terms of the relative numbers. So you saw some movement for laws at that time, beginning, of course, in California, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> where a lot of the bad trends uh, began, legislative trends. Um, during the Civil War, they passed laws against Chinese immigration in the state of California. A lot of those were sort of not enforced or not held up. Uh, the court struck them down. But then you saw a federal law passed in 1875 against a lot of contract labor coming in. So you saw the end of like indentured servitude contracts being made illegal. That was meant to target Chinese because the idea was that these Chinese are all being hired as basically slave laborers. So the same – and they were were they taking people's jobs? Was that also an idea? Would you say, or was it more concern for the Chinese? Oh, I think it was definitely the uh, uh, concern for Americans. I mean, I don't think the concern for the Chinese entered into it at all. The, uh, concern for immigrants rarely enters into the discussions of uh, immigration law. But um, I think seven years later, people realized that most of the Chinese coming were not indentured servants and weren't prostitutes, which was another thing that law was meant to start. So um, stop. So in 1882, they passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. Which was the first time that a large well, just clearly people, named there. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly what it does. Yeah. Um, does it um, immediately? It was um, very controversial actually because it was thought to impact foreign policy with China. So a lot of American presidents sort of spoke up about it, were critical of it, saying, "Hey, this worsens our relations with China." But it didn't matter. Mm. Um, so that was set to expire ten years later. Um, 
before it was able to be wiped off the books, they reauthorized it and made it basically permanent. Um, after that, you sort of have a gentleman's agreement between the United States and Japan in 1907. Japan said, we won't give any immigration visas. And America said, yeah, we'll turn them away. Mm-hmm. So there was nothing legislative, mm-hmm. but it was sort of off the books. In 1917, you see sort of this, this building uh, movement for a literacy, literacy test. So you saw a lot of Eastern European immigrants, a lot of Italian immigrants, sort of what people back then called the new immigrants coming into the United States. As opposed to them who were the old immigrants. Yeah, as opposed to the pre-1890 immigrants yeah. who were of northern European, mostly Protestant stock, a lot of Germans, uh, Swedes, English, Scots, etc., being replaced by Italians, Eastern Europeans, Jews, Poles, southern Germans, Hungarians, uh, Greeks, you know, different-looking people from different cultures with different religions. And as and the stereotype was, well, these people are all illiterate, mm-hmm. and uh, they're all coming in. We don't, we can't have illiteracy in a modern society, and all the other usual things. So uh, they passed a literacy act. So you had to basically read portions of the U.S. Constitution in any language that you came from to come in. So you didn't have to be literate in English. You could read it in Slovak or German or something else, but you had to prove it. Um, immigration, the numbers didn't really fall off after that. Um, they fell off during the World War I period, but after World War I, the numbers jumped right back up to what they were prior to that. So they passed a law in 1921 um, meant to – you know, it, it said that um, you know, it was the national origin quotas. Mm-hmm. So it limited immigration to um, – you know, if you were from a particular country, um, it limited the quota to 3 percent of what that foreign-born population was in the U.S. in 1910. Okay. So if there were 100,000 people – from your country in the U.S. in 1910, you had a quota of 3,000 people per year that could come in. Okay. They realized that that led in too many people from Southern and Eastern Europe. <laughs> so uh, by 1924, they changed it to 2% of the 1890 census, okay. which favored Northern Europeans, Irish, etc. And uh, basically uh, beginning with Hoover and continuing with FDR, they didn't really issue any visas uh, to anybody coming out because uh, at that point you also had to go to consul- consulates abroad to get your visa before coming. But there is a big law. In, I think it's at 26. There's a, a big immigration law that was passed that started a way – the wave of um, – well, especially it was passed amidst a lot of eugenics discussion if I remember correctly that at the time they were also very into purifying the human race in a variety of ways. It was a hugely popular – Intellectual movement. The Supreme Court upheld eugenics in 1927. Uh, it, uh, the state of Virginia forcibly sterilizing a woman. But I think and before that, 26 is when they passed the immigration law. A lot of it based on keeping out the uh, the bad human stock outside. So first you keep the human stock, the bad ones on the outside of the country, and then you purify the the blood inside the country. I think was the the process they were looking at. Yeah, so the 1924 law, I think, is the one that you're referencing. I mean, all these immigration restrictions at this time and sort of the um, – from the 19-teens sort of up through World War II were definitely influenced by eugenesis, eugenics ideas. Um, to give you an example, um, they used uh, – when, when arguing uh, – debating about the Emergency Quota Act of 1921, uh, they used the uh, term uh, race suicide was used frequently on the halls of Congress to describe what was occurring with immigration in the United States. Um, the American Economic Association, which was founded in 1885, which dominated by eugenics, eugenicists early on, um, they began offering prizes to people who wrote essays about why immigration needs to be closed off. Um, wow. Irving Fisher, a famous economist in the 20s, uh, said, you know, leaving aside the issue of race, uh, immigration is economically beneficial. Um, but the issue of race made it non-beneficial because these people were polluting the English race. Um, 1887, progressive economist Edward W. Bemis decided that the uh, the idea of using the literacy literacy test was sort of a good gateway to it. And uh, sort of an interesting side note: Sidney Webb, who was sort of this Fabian socialist at the time in the UK, like these eugenicist ideas were popular everywhere. To keep in mind, he sort of came up with the term adverse de- um, adverse selection to describe. Uh, English race suicide by allowing in Jewish immigrants to uh, the UK for really the first time ever. So, I mean, it's hard to separate the ideas of eugenicist notions at this time from immigration restriction. And that probably is just generally true. There's often been uh, relatively little, um, I would say, highbrow or, or or good reasons maybe for restricting immigration. And historically, it's usually been pretty bad, pr- pretty base reasons. Usually pretty base, but what's interesting is with these early immigration laws, 
like these eugenics-inspired ones, um, there were no national origins quotas applied to countries in the Western Hemisphere. So Mexicans, Canadians, Central South Americans, Cubans, there were no explicit quotas for them. They focused mainly on, Asia, on Asians, what they called Asiatics back then, uh, Africans, and on Southern and Eastern Europeans and Jews. So it was basically something that was born partly out of eugenicist concerns, but also out of concerns of, well, who are the immigrants who are coming today, as opposed to thinking about who are the people who could potentially come in the future. What does this history tell us about the the current concern, because the concerns that get expressed today about immigration are not eugenics ones. They're, they're stealing our jobs. They're having a negative economic impact. And so we've got this history of immigrant groups coming in. Uh, does that history speak to these concerns? Is there evidence that when a, a new group, whatever it happens to be, floods in, it depresses the wages of the prior groups? Yeah, so that's uh, one of the more interesting questions. I mean, if you think of your standard supply and demand model, you know, increase the supply, then the price goes down. So you think of, okay, well, if that's wages, well, then it must do the same thing. But, uh, of course, labor is not homogeneous, it's heterogeneous. Um, if I bring in a bunch of PhD-level rocket scientists, they're not going to bring down the salary of, say, an immigration policy analyst at Cato <laughs> because we just you – know, we have different jobs. Yeah. I mean they're incomparable. They're not you – know, no number of me is going to make up for a rocket scientist, mm-hmm. um, like period. So – and the same thing applies to uh, immigration. So because immigrants are complements, that is they have different skills than a lot of uh, native-born workers, different education and stuff, we don't see a whole lot of that in history. Um, we see maybe evidence that wage growth was slower than it otherwise would have been because of immigration, especially when the immigrants are more similar to Americans. But that's only a nominal wage growth. When we take a look at sort of real wage growth, which is the amount of money that you have in your pocket, how many things you can buy with what you have, immigration a lot of times lowers the, the price of things. So if you think about it this way, uh, you know, a lot of us uh, have kids or want to have kids in the near future. If you lower the price of a nanny, for your children by, say, 50 percent because you allow a lot of you know, low-skilled immigrants come in who could be nannies, well, that increases your real wage mm-hmm. as an American worker. So there's a lot of complicated effects. But generally, um, the most negative thing that we've ever found is that from 1990 to 2006, um, low-skilled immigration to the United States has decreased the wages of Americans with less than a high school degree by about 4.5 percent. Okay. That's in a time period we have about 30 million immigrants coming into the United States, about 10 percent of the American population total up to this point. Um, and that's the most negative finding you can find. What's interesting is for other education groups, you see a slight wage increase because of this game, because of complementarities in the labor market because of different specialization. So the question um, then is liber- as libertarians, how should we generally be thinking about this as I think that – the way you pointed this out and you mentioned it earlier too about – we talked about how does this affect the people here, right? How, the, the people of any given country when the immigration comes in, how does it affect them? And very rarely do we talk about what about the immigrants. It doesn't seem like that's ever the focus of the, of the policy discussion. But of course the immigrants have got to be better off and maybe that's where our focus should be. So if, as libertarians and as people who like freedom, should we be thinking about how much happiness immigration can bring and, and I think it probably can bring a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely should include the um, the economic benefits and the other benefits to immigrants. I mean, they're of equal moral, moral worth or ethical worth to, to the rest of us individually. I mean, they're not worth any less um, just because they happen to be born in a different place. Uh, of course, the state doesn't really operate like that, you know, and a lot of people sort of think of foreigners as being different. I mean, Brian Kaplan has that great uh, insight where he thinks that people have an anti-foreign bias. But how, um, how should libertarians or how do libertarians sort of uh, think about this issue? You know, I think – I mean you guys can correct me. You're the experts in libertarian philosophy. But I, I see like from my perspective like three really broad you know, thoughts in libertarianism. I see you know, sort of the natural rights perspective. Um, I see sort of ethical intuitionism, sort of the Michael Humer idea that what is wrong in our day-to-day lives is wrong for me to coerce somebody else. Therefore, it's wrong for the state to do the same thing no matter what its goals are. And then I see sort of a utilitarian or consequentialist school, sort of like the Milton Friedman, uh, David Friedman school, like this is good for everyone. Um, yeah. for everyone. It's good for their economic welfare. It's good for that. Well, then let me ask because as, as has been kind of a common theme through a lot of our Free Thoughts podcasts, we, we talk about how 
you know, many people disagree with libertarians, but libertarians also disagree amongst themselves. And this is one area where there is a large amount of disagreement among people who all would call themselves libertarians. So there are people who are very opposed to liberalizing immigration, letting more immigrants in. They would like to radically restrict it. There are people on the opposite end who would like to just open the borders entirely and let people move across them freely. And all of these people are justifying this or claim to be justifying it based upon principles that lead them to libertarianism. So is there is there a way that things like natural rights can speak to both sides of the debate or you could derive either side from these principles? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, to begin it, I think using these three sort of uh, sides in the debate, um, you can very easily come to where there should be very few restrictions on immigration, just taking them all at face value. But a lot of people, I think, it, uh, use sort of the natural rights perspective to justify immigration restrictions, and they make sort of a faulty analogy. They say, listen, um, as a prior property owner, it is your right to exclude people from your property. You can build a fence, you can patrol your borders, you can shoot people who come into your house, etc. But um, why? So th therefore, why can't the nation do the same thing? Which is sort of a it's, it's common. You see it all over the place. But if you think about it for a little bit of time, it doesn't make that much sense. I mean the government doesn't own all the land in the United States. We're not North Korea. Um, and the United States government is not a club of the sort whereby anybody who's in the clubhouse, that is the country, um, automatically decides that um, nobody else in the clubhouse can associate in any kind of way with other people. And I mean also, Michael Humer makes that point like really well in his essay, like just because the government has sovereignty over the U.S. – you know, over the territory of the United States um, doesn't mean that it can do anything. I mean the sovereign is limited. That's what the whole point of the constitution, right, is it will sort of limit the sovereign. And then the counterargument is, well, these people are outsiders. They're coming in. It's sort of like an aggressive foreign action. They're meant to defend Americans. It's like, yeah, they are meant to defend Americans, but mainly from other sovereigns. Mm -hmm. um, that's where the whole sovereignty sort of argument comes into it. So, what well, also seems like restrictions on immigration at some sort of basic level are also restrictions on us, uh, on people, us being on this side of the border, uh, because they're telling me that I can't associate with someone who's on the other side of this line that Which I is, would want to associate. It's particularly with. true when we're talking about jobs because. The, the issue here is immigrants coming in and then getting jobs here and they're getting those jobs from – presumably or most of them are from Americans who want to hire them. And so you're stepping in and saying, look, you can't hire this person. You you can't pay them a mutually agreeable wage for work. So that seems – yeah, that's a, that's a limitation on – a strong limitation on the freedom of Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean to limit the rights of immigrants, you necessarily have to limit the rights of Americans to deal with them. I mean you have to destroy these contract rights to sign a contract and you have to limit the use of American property. So I'm not allowed to hire somebody from another country to come onto my property um, because of these sort of arbitrary um, uh, immigration restrictions that have to do with that. So, And that's something that a lot of people forget. I mean, yeah, it's true most Americans are fairly skeptical of immigration, but you know, most Americans are fairly skeptical of a lot of things. Um, if most Americans were skeptical of computers, that wouldn't be an argument for making computers illegal, I think, and I think most libertarians would accept that. But somehow when foreigners are brought into it, um, some people sort of um, become very skeptical. Another thing that I think is effective sometimes at convincing libertarians to be opposed to immigration is uh, the rule of law argument. So they take a look at the current situation. They see a decent number of unauthorized immigrants. And I think libertarians, you know, they rightly conclude that the rule of law is important for a well-functioning, prosperous, and free society. But I think they wrongly conclude that therefore we should enforce the immigration laws as much as possible as they are in the books. And I think that that second part is just uh, wrong. I mean to give you an example, I mean the, the rule of law – multiple definitions of what that means. I mean Trevor can tell us all about that. But I mean three broad things that they mean is you know, predictable outcomes, uh, equal application and uh, consistent with our traditions, um, you know, in particular our peculiar Anglo-Saxon traditions of liberty <laughs> in the United States. So it has to basically satisfy all three of those in order to be consistent with that. But the immigration laws, um, if you talk to anybody who goes to the system or lawyers, I mean there are virtually no predictable outcomes. Um, it, they are not applied equally. Um, you hear people with the exact same sort of um, qualifications. They should be eligible for a green card. But because a bureaucrat checks a box differently or does something else, um, they get denied. Um, 
And it, they're certainly not consistent with our traditions of liberty. And you can go back and read the writings of uh, Jefferson, of Blackstone, of um, – a lot of uh, Benjamin Franklin, a lot of the sort of the early American Enlightenment writers. I mean, John Locke has an essay about naturalization mm-hmm. and about how it's the right of people to move and to alienate their former property and to find you know new property and to move to different climes or other places. That's sort of a, a natural right that's understood. Grotius, Hugo Grotius, one of the early proponents of international law, one of the, a great writer, classical liberal thinker, wrote about the necessity of letting people leave. But and go someplace else. But in order to leave, you have to have a place to go. That's not Antarctica or the middle of the ocean. Yeah, that's not Antarctica or the middle of the ocean. Now, I think that's an, it's a little bit faulty in some ways. That doesn't mean that every country has to have perfectly open borders. But that means that people, sh- the countries should be a little bit less restrictive in the people they allow to leave. So the, uh, the, the question then on the rule of law issue is you have the other people say, well, I mean, I'm for immigration. I just want this to be legal immigration and they should get in line. So, so where's the line? Well, we should, we should also say that I mean one of the obvious problems with the rule of law argument is <clears throat> what if the law is not just? Yeah. You know, I mean it, it's like there was a time when slavery was the law of the land. But to say like, well, we should – that just means we should return runaway slaves you know, until we get go about – Changing the law, we we need to you know we need to enforce the law before we can we can fix it, mm-hmm. um, which is seems insane. abhorrent. It's insane, which yeah. is insane. I mean, I mean, um, oftentimes illegality is the only way that we can make so we, we can live under a series of unjust laws by and living. All of us are doing legal things market. all the time. So all the time. I mean, uh, <laughs> and and not yes. that I want to compare like um, American immigration system to like the Soviet and you know Nazi concentration camps. Yeah. But there's a story that uh, I go back. You know, Brian Kaplan tells a story about somebody that he met who was imprisoned in both, and his whole family was imprisoned in both a Nazi and then a Soviet concentration camp. And Brian asked him, "Well, which one was worse?" And he goes, "Oh, the Nazis by far." And it's like, "Well, why?" And he goes, well, because the Nazis enforced all the rules and they believed in the rules. Meanwhile, the Soviets were, would let things slip all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, 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 the issue is with current American immigration laws. You know, Ellis Island is closed. Mm-hmm. It's been closed for a long time. There was a line there. There was I mean, a line there. I think there. a real line actually. <laughs> there was a line there. And there are lines in some places of American immigration law. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, if you are not highly skilled, closely related to an American – one of a small number of beneficiaries of the diversity visa, which is only 50,000 a year, 14 million people apply for it last year, but only 50,000 a year are issued, or a refugee or a asylee, there is no way for you to enter the United States lawfully to get a green card. I think you told me at one point that, that uh, a Mexican like without a high school diploma, who you know, a younger man probably would – if he went through every process and procedure to get – authorized to come to here, it would take him about 130 years under the current wait times and everything to try and get to the country? Yeah. So there's 5,000 green cards set aside for low-skilled workers in the United States annually, 5,000. 5,000? 5,000. And most of our uh, ancestors came in on low-skilled. You know, They came in. They didn't have any skills when they came in in the early 20th or 19th century or before then. So if you were to apply American immigration laws in the past, virtually none of us would uh, be here today. Unless our p- parents were like rocket scientists. Yeah, something. which is absurd because in 1940, only 12 percent of Americans had a high school degree. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to compare that to current uh, immigrants today, two-thirds have a high school degree and um, about half of illegal immigrants have a high school degree in the United States. So just – which is similar to the American workforce in 1965. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if anybody would call the American workforce in 1965 horribly unskilled. Mm-hmm. I mean by today's standards, they were uh, relatively unskilled. But it's not like we're uh, importing a bunch of serfs from Central Europe who are all literate. Uh, in the 13th century. Um, these are people who are pretty skilled by um, international and by historical standards. Another argument that I hear made to restrict immigration, it's one that I find really troubling and off-putting, but it's a, it's a common one I think is, look, the, if the goal is to promote policies that are going to increase liberty and we're, we're going to do that from within the United States, we're going to try to increase liberty within the United States. Immigrants have, it's claimed, these anti-liberty views. They, they don't – new immigrants don't vote for candidates who – Or for liberty. Or whoever for liberty or whatever it is. So, so they – so by allowing, them those. In, yeah. by allowing those people in and increasing numbers, we are over time going to diminish the amount of liberty that's available to everyone including them. Yeah, I mean if you assume that there's no kind of political or civic assimilation, I mean I guess you can make that argument. I mean – 
but it's just it's a silly argument, and it's quite frankly kind of. I'm not easily offended, but it's kind of an offend, offensive argument. You know, assuming that the only reason why I want immigration is to stack the political deck in my favor. <laughs> yeah, and, I'm willing and, to keep people in, yeah, in and, horrible places unless they're Republicans yeah, unless and then they can come over. Yeah, or some other – or libertarians mm-hmm. or you know, it's trying to create like a curly effect. You know, as if you know, the only reason why anybody could legitimately be in favor of immigration as an American is to stack the political deck in your favor is just quite frankly offensive. But immigrants aren't even that – you know they're not like Stalinists mm-hmm. compared to you know uh, compared to the average American today, and there's much greater differences amongst American voters of different ethnicities, of different races, uh, genders, um, sexual orientations, and just geographically in the United States than there are between the average immigrant and the average American. So there's a recent paper by this guy named uh, Hal Pashler of UCSD, and he sort of took a look at this and just to give you an example of like affirmative action. Um, U.S.-born Americans, uh, 53.8% strongly oppose affirmative action compared to 45.9% of immigrants. Now, that's a difference. That's eight percentage point difference. Like that is something. But does that mean they're going to usher in a new age of like socialism mm-hmm. and push us towards central planning? I don't think so. But, and, but when you take a look at all the people who, who support affirmative action in the United States, only 18.3% of Americans do – but about 23.8% of uh, immigrants do. So the differences are relatively small. Um, and, the, and the funny thing is some of these differences between Americans and immigrants support like the conservative position, oh, yeah. which is something that yeah, you don't hear very often. So they're more in favor of banning certain types of like anti-American literature in libraries. They're more interested in banning like pornography or having restrictions on it. They probably also think that uh, more in line with Republicans that hard work – Rewards, uh, hard work is rewarded yes. uh, in America, and there it should be encouraged and not discouraged in, in a general sense. I think that they they came here for opportunity, and they should be almost more American than maybe privileged white people who've been here for long enough and and uh, forgot what it's like to work hard. Well, I won't comment on the privileged white people, but uh, <laughs> in terms of like Pew Pew does surveys about this all the time, and they ask um, if you work really hard in America, can you make it? And uh, Hispanic immigrants, Asian immigrants, and generally most of their children um, agree with that statement more so than like Americans who've been here for three or more generations. I also think it's the case that it's – I mean I think it's, it's an immoral argument to make yeah. that mm-hmm. we should restrict immigration mm-hmm. based on the beliefs of the immigrants, especially, especially for people who consider themselves libertarians who care about rights, care about liberty and care about treating people equally and autonomously that to say – we're going to restrict the rights of a certain group of people because they don't share the same beliefs we do mm-hmm. seems like a deeply, deeply anti-libertarian, anti-liberty well, position the, to I take. Think it's, de- it's deeply wrong. I mean as, as a Virginian, I don't want to restrict the movement of D.C. residents into my state even though they're much more likely to you know, vote for candidates that I find to be abhorrent. I mean that's just something that I think we can all agree on. The use of coercion to keep out people of different opinions – is wrong now. It play, seems like I mean, it seems like a really pernicious form of censorship. It is really You're pernicious. just excluding their voices with force. But I think uh, and the play's devil advocate for a while. I think a lot of these uh, pro restrictionist libertarians or people like that, you know, they'll say, well, politics is different. You know, you have a very high negative externality to having people vote for these candidates, and they don't, uh, you know, for you know, big government candidates that they don't bear all the costs for. Um, and you sort of um, you see that stated uh, frequently, but I think it doesn't have much to do with the inborn opinions of immigrants. I don't think immigrants are naturally more likely to like big government than other people, other Americans. I think the main problem is that the expressly pro-big government party in the United States has been aggressively and successfully courting them. For uh, for centuries, and Republicans have been alienating them for, yeah, for at least thirty yeah, years. The supposedly small government Republicans who use you know at least some libertarian rhetoric occasionally when they talk about um, economic freedom uh, alienates them by being sort of um, skeptical of immigration, its benefits, and using some tactics. You know what's what's interesting is in the nineteenth century uh, with immigration, um, immigrants voted overwhelmingly Democratic as well. But that is when the Democratic Party was the laissez-faire – at least the Northern Democratic Party was the laissez-faire party. You know, a free trade, uh, fewer regulations domestically on business. At least, you know, the Northern Democrats were like that. Um, And they switched around the early 1900s to being the sort of big government party. 
Um, but immigrants kept their allegiances. And what's interesting is third-generation immigrants today, using the uh, general social survey data, um, ideologically, they align almost equally with all other Americans in sort of being conservative, very conservative, liberal, et cetera, but they're still more likely to vote Democratic. Mm-hmm. And I think that has more to do with identity politics and successful political strategies than it does to do with sort of some sort of genetic or inborn or cultural-like ideology. Also given the fact that just the term immigrants encompasses a, a huge amount of people, everyone who's not inside this country, yeah. and saying one thing about them seems a little bit excessive. But the one question though that someone would, would probably be thinking thinking right now listening to this is what about Europe and the old the Markstein type of argument and Aaron says this is a really bad idea to restrict immigration because of their beliefs but you have this idea that Europe is being overrun by Muslims and uh, those Muslims in Europe are not assimilating and very soon they're going to turn Europe into a Muslim world. That's Mark Stein wrote an entire book about that. Yeah, uh, America alone. America alone. Yeah, which is it's an interesting book. His demographic projections have already failed um, because there's one thing about trends is that we know they always change. That's the one thing we know about them. So the Muslim birth rate in Europe is decreasing dramatically. Uh, a lot of immigration in Europe has decreased dramatically, and the native-born birth rate and the European birth rate has increased actually a little bit. It has, oh. yeah, a little bit. So uh, there's this weird cohort effect that occurs in demographics that we can talk about uh, later if you want. But uh, what's interesting is Europe does have different issues in the United States. One issue is culture, so it's very, it's much more difficult to assimilate into a European culture. But some of them it's country. impossible. Some of them it's impossible. I mean, they have a blood borders culture-based conception of national identity. So your tribe killed some other tribe in some area, settled there 2,000 years ago, and to be considered a member of that nation state now, you have to be a member of that tribe. So you and I and Aaron, if we all immigrated to Germany and learned German and became German citizens and called ourselves Germans, Germans would correct us. Mm -hmm. They would say, no, we're really this or that. We're the opposite here in the United States. We get offended when people who come here and want to live here don't call themselves Americans. So we have this sort of soft cultural push because to be American, well, you can't have a blood definition of American. That's absurd. The largest um, ethnic group in the United States by um, by last name is German Mm -hmm. at 17 percent. So the notion of American by blood um, is kind of silly with the exception of maybe uh, Native Americans. Um, So we have a civic conception of what it means to be an American and probably a linguistic conception. I mean English is associated with that. That's not going to change. And that tend has gotten broader over time. Another reason is the welfare state. So Europe has much larger welfare states, especially on the low end for like poor, for the, for the impoverished, uh, public housing, things like this. And it's much easier to get in many of these countries than it is in the United States. So it is conceivable to immigrate to Europe and in many of these European countries, get on welfare immediately as an immigrant, stay in public housing, never have to work, never have to learn the local language. Um, and basically be in an ethnic ghetto and have, you know, live a pretty poor existence, probably better than the place you came from, and not have to assimilate at all. Um, in the United States, if you're here on a green card, um, you have to work for five years before you can get any kind of uh, means-tested welfare benefits in most states. Um, and the benefits that you get are relatively small compared to what you can do just by working a little bit uh, here in the United States. So there's sort of this cultural push to assimilate here that's stronger than in Europe because of our history and because of who we are. But there's also, um, you know, not this welfare state, which has two components, which is keeping people separate and not having to assimilate, but also selecting people who are more likely to move for welfare benefits. A different type of person, yeah. A different type of person, not the type of person who's more likely to want to um, become part of the United States. That's, add? of course, like not – that's like not to say that most immigrants – to Europe or in Europe are, are bad. I mean, most immigrants now in Europe are from other European countries. I mean, the Schengen Agreement in 1993 made it legal for every country in the EU to basically have open borders with every other country in the EU. And I lived in London for a year, and you have an enormous number of... I mean, London is like the fourth or fifth biggest French city because they're escaping these high tax rates um, in their own country. So there's a lot of, like, European immigration. So it's not – so, I mean, it's not just that Europeans are worried about Muslim immigration. They are. A lot of them are. But you also have a lot of British people worried about Polish plumbers and you have a lot of people worried about the Bulgarians and Romanians. Um, on January 1st, England has to open up – the rest of the EU has to open up its borders to Bulgarians. Um, and people are worried about that for – For a lot of economic yeah, reasons. Economic. I mean, it, it's estimated – 
that somewhere between 77 and 100,000 Bulgarians may come to England every year for the next five to ten years. Now, that's an enormous amount of people for a smaller country like the United Kingdom. It doesn't sound like much to us Americans, but um, they're really worried about that. And I think a lot of it has to do with their cultural ideas and conservatism and welfare state. So before we get on to what we ought to do to improve immigration policy, to bring it both more in line with libertarian principles but also just to make it more effective, uh, what – let's try to be charitable for a moment and just ask, are there any – not necessarily good but certainly better arguments than the ones we've just talked about for heavily restricted, for heavily restricted immigration, well, for, for limiting more than we are now or at least keeping things the way they are now. Well, like the question I like to ask is what are there is there any argument that applies against immigration that doesn't also apply to newborn children? There might be there might be some that are better. I mean, if people have children, then maybe they take our jobs and and all these issues we can talk about. Are these good arguments? Taking our jobs, cultural uh, cultural change, uh, welfare state, any of those things? Well, the economic arguments really aren't any good, and this is something that almost every economist. I mean, even the even George Borjas, who is the most pessimistic about the economic benefits of immigration, um, concedes that it's on net very uh, beneficial for the U.S. He thinks it's small, somewhere on the avenue of like 40 to $50 billion a year, but he still concedes it's positive. And that doesn't even include the benefit to the immigrants. No, he, no, they do not include the benefits to the immigrants in a lot of these discussions. Uh, they should because when we talk about the benefits of trade, we include the benefits to foreigners that we trade with. So I think that we should uh, include that. I think one – I think the argument that does have the most power is um, the political externalities argument that we talked about. Um, so it's conceivable if we had more immigration that we had right now that there could be sort of a swamping of the electorate, especially if a lot of immigrants could vote and didn't actually politically participate. You could have a lot of sort of um, – bad ideas or more anti-liberty ideas um, involved in the political process than you currently do right now. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's an argument against restrictions so much as it is about changing the rules of naturalization. That's something that the government does have power over. So you know, you have to be here for five years before you can apply for a citizenship. If you want to make it 10 or 15 or 20 years so that they're more politically or civically assimilated, I think that's a perfectly reasonable argument. But there has to be someone – I mean going about the economic argument. There's got to be someone out there who's hurt by immigration, who has a job, oh, yeah. a job right now, and oh, yeah. and and you, I know unions are have always been pretty against immigration. Well, you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned the people without high school diplomas saw the what was it four percent drop in. That's the most wages. pessimistic. I mean, but are there people outside of say that group? And how many? I mean, how big is that group? How many people in the U.S. currently don't have high school diplomas? Uh, over the age of twenty-five, about nine percent. Okay. So it's not that many – I mean it's a lot of numbers but it's a really small percentage of the American population. I mean with every economic – large economic scale economic policy shift like this, there are going to be winners and losers. I think the, the challenge is finding out whether the winners outnumber the losers and whether the amount they win by is greater than the amount the losers buy, the losers lose by. So you know, in free trade, that's a situation and virtually everything, that's a situation. Um, but if we're really, really worried about the impact on low-skilled Americans, there are a lot of like cheaper things that we can do to try to help them. If the government has to be involved, I don't want it to be, but if it has to be involved, there are a lot of cheaper things that they can do to help. That doesn't include locking out foreigners who could see their wages increase by three to 15-fold by moving here, increasing world GDP, increasing the li their livelihoods, as well as the livelihoods of Americans who want to um, you know, work with them. I mean, what, one simple thing is like, hey, get a GED. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, what, what is the? There is a number of um, how much relatively open borders, some open borders would increase the G GDP of the world. And yeah. that's been someone took a hazard hazarded a guess at that. Yes, right? someone did a back of the envelope calculation. Uh, Michael Clemens from the Center of Global Development sort of did a literature survey of the estimates and he used a simple general equilibrium model. So it's real simple, but he estimates that. If there were open borders and people were allowed to move to higher wages um, and there are basically no restrictions on that, then uh, world GDP would stabilize at 50 to 150 percent greater than it currently is, which is somewhere between about 30 and 90 trillion dollars of additional global output annually. That's amazing. Which, and you know, as radical of a libertarian as I am in almost every sphere, I can't think of another policy shift around the world that would have such a big impact on so many people so radically. Mm. Yeah, because the problem with 
being in Haiti, for example, or, or sub-Saharan Africa is, is that they don't have – it's being in Haiti. Yeah. It's, the, it's the institutions. It's the lack of, of basic government. It's a lack of uh, – it's interesting saying lack of government here, but it's a lack of trust – They have the misdirected court government. Misdirected. It's a, it's a kleptocracy. More predatory. Yeah. And so letting them come here seems to me it, – it seems to me even just standing in the way of them coming here is presumptively immoral. It is. You're, you're exerting coercion on people who want to come here and sell their labor in an open market. And there's someone here who wants to buy their labor. Yeah. And someone here who wants to buy the products that they make and rent to them. And all the different sort of economic exchanges are really standing in that way. Um, I think what you'd see if that policy was ever enacted, a lot of countries like Haiti, um, Zimbabwe, Zambia, a lot of these really poor countries with bad institutions basically empty out and become ghost countries. And you see this sort of... Um, you know, some groovy people like uh, Paul Collier who wrote in a, a recent book that, about the brain drain. Mm-hmm. You know, if we do this, then all the bright people in the third world, all of the educated people, they're all going to leave. Even things that, that that's happening now, that's going to hurt the rest of them. Well, that, that assumes that every person's intellect and productive capacity is partly owned by the society in which they were born mm-hmm. and that any sort of benefit to that uh, – deserves to be owned at least in part by the people around the place where he was born, which is sort of a terrible argument, I think, um, ethically. Um, it's an absurd argument. But also it just has the virtue of like not being true. <laughs> so factually what we see is when countries like the United Kingdom allow South African nurses, for instance, to come over, the United States allows Filipino nurses, you see the number of people in these countries trying to get these degrees skyrocket, go up dramatically. And not all of them are able to leave. I mean if you start an education program at the age of 18 with the intention of getting to the U.S. by the time you graduate at 22, you know, maybe life got in your way and you can't leave. But you still have those skills. So we find out that it actually increases the total skill amount in, in these country countries by having the ability to study and go abroad with those skills and make more money because you've increased the incentive to get that kind of education. So if we – Think that it's presumptively immoral, or that—that's what I think, and I, I think you guys agree with me that to to stand in the way of someone who's trying to leave a place where they're being oppressed and and impoverished, uh, and keep them from coming to a place where that's not going to happen—that's presumptively immoral. So you need to have a good reason for that. And if a lot of these reasons don't really flush out, so what about open borders? Uh, uh, why don't we Why don't we have open borders? There, there are some people like. Brian Kaplan, I know, is very big into open borders, just makes the pure philosophical argument that there's no good reason to, to do this. Um, but yeah, we, I know you are not an open borders guy. So, uh, But what about the case for that and where's, where's the problems with that? Yeah, I mean I, let me just define a term I guess so we can have going forward. I mean when I think of open borders, I think of the border between Virginia and D.C., mm-hmm. which I pass like every day. I don't have to show any ID. There's no inspection. You know, I, I can walk, take the train, drive, whatever. It's very, very easy to do that. That's what I think of uh, when I think of open borders. I do think that there is no justification for blanket bans or blanket restrictions on categories of people, but there is good justification for inspections. Mm-hmm. And there are three broad sort of uh, subgroups of types that I think can be uh, legitimately restricted by the state. Uh, to enter the United States. One is um, uh, violent and property criminals, people who either have a severe suspicion of being so or who have been so in the past. Uh, another group are uh, suspected or actual terrorists or national security concerns, like legitimate ones like that. I mean, that's sort of in the same category as criminals. Another is people with deadly and serious communicable diseases. So these are three groups of people who we think if a lot of them are allowed in, not all of them, but a good number of them, the danger is significant enough that they will hurt the life, liberty, and prior property of other Americans, either intentionally or unintentionally, to such a degree that having inspections, I think, would produce a better outcome for Americans and for most immigrants, by the way, who want to come here than having totally open borders. And is that what Ellis Island pretty much was? That's pretty much what um, – I mean Ellis Island had some other stuff, but that's, that's pretty much what Ellis Island's uh, predecessor, uh, Castle, uh, Castle Island, was. I mean they checked you for diseases. They checked you to see if you were covered in prison tattoos mm-hmm. um, and that was about it. Um, there was issues with terrorism actually back in the early 20th century. People uh, forget about. So you know, the present wave of terrorism is not something that's new or unique to us. 
Um, Italian anarchists. Italian anarcho-communists, yeah. you know, the Gallienists. They blew up like 38 bombs in 1919. They tried to kill the attorney general. They blew, blew up a bomb on Wall Street. They did and you had uh, – and that was a time when you know you had a communist revolution going on in another country. You had world leaders assassinated by communists of the, sharing the same ideology, including an American president um, in the recent past, including um, you know, a czar of Russia and other world leaders. Um, you had the LA Times building blown up and I think it was 1910, like the largest terrorist attack at that time in the United States by a bunch of union communist thugs. Mm -hmm. So this was like a very real threat that people were very much aware of and it was gaining traction overseas. So it's not like some new thing. But just to put it into um, sort of perspective, like this terrorist needle in a haystack, um, the government uh, – the FBI has an uh, integrated automatic fingerprint identification system called IAFIS um, of known um, – of criminals, known and suspected terrorists, etc. 73,000 known and suspected terrorists are in there out of a total of 70 million people. That's one-tenth of one percent of um, people who are in that system are accused or suspected of being terrorists. And to put it in uh, sort of a more um, interesting perspective um, – in the decades since 9-11, there were only 37 deportation cases on terrorism-related grounds, 37 deportation cases out of a total of about 3.4 million. 3.4 uh, million deportations to cases total. So, total, but only 37 of them were on terrorism-related grounds. Now, it doesn't mean they were convicted of terrorism. That just means that they were suspected enough to be able to get a deportation uh, case against them. So I believe that uh, equals to 0.001% of all deportations. Um, and the decade after 9-11 happened to do uh, with terrorism. But, you know, terrorism can cause a significant amount of harm and kill people. So I think that there is an argument for some inspections to try to root out those types of people. OK. So it seems like we should have, you know, these low restrictions for both our benefit because I like having immigrants here. I, uh, you know, Italians bring Italian food. Germans bring German food, Mexican, Mexican food. It's not just the food but they bring culture. They, they enrich our society. Uh, I, I'm really glad that I don't just have to eat, you know, horrible Midwestern uh, Bangers and mash. Bangers and mash. Yeah, that's a good a good example. This really is just about food. This is just about food for me. No. <laughs> um, so we should have we should let these people in. It would help them. It would help us. Help us. And we should have these small restrictions. And then someone would clearly say, well, okay, well then we're going to have five hundred million people or however many million people come to America. And there's just not enough room. We can't have that many people here. It would be a shock to the system of America where pe people would be living in Hoovervilles uh, on the side of the road. Uh, it's just, it's just un unworkable. We, c we can't have 800 million people in America. What, what do we say to that? Well, I, uh, I don't think they're right. I mean all of the constraints on growth in the United States, especially property development, come from the government. Um, that's why you see places like San Francisco being so expensive. I mean there are geographic limitations but you can build up, you can build down and you can build more densely. So you have places where American cities are not allowed to do that. So if let's say we had a system like this, um, to give you an example, uh, Gallup does a poll every couple of years where they ask people around the world like how – do you want to immigrate? Where do you want to go? Um, about 150 million people said they want to come to the United States. So let's say – you know, we do this policy and we get 100 million more people in a relatively short amount of time. Well, I don't think they're going to be drawn to a lot of these places that are crowded already because of poor provision of public services. I think a lot of them are going to places like Houston, like Dallas, like San Antonio, cities in the Phoenix, cities in the Southwest where that are relatively less regulated in terms of expansion um, and will be able to accommodate them much more easily. And it's also funny to note that. Um, this notion of crowding is only brought up in places where there's a public provision of these goods and services. You know, how many store owners complain about crowding? Well, mm -hmm. that's an opportunity to charge higher prices or increase output and charge the same price and to make a whole heck of a lot more money and increase profits. Mm -hmm. So it's only in areas like electricity, housing, all these other like the traffic's going to be horrible. The traffic's <laughs> going to be horrible. You know, God forbid we we charge people for using the roads. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's sort of the argument. But I, I don't think there's sort of any innate natural number, you know, carrying capacity for the United States in terms of the number of people. Um, I think that determines uh, – that's determined by our standard of living. That's determined by how many of them that we can profitably employ and how many of them want to be employed over here. It's determined by the market, by supply and demand. So the, the flow of immigrants itself would not just – it would not just – it would be affected 
it would not just be a constant stream as the as the conditions of the United States change. Uh, people will say, well, I'd like to go there because there's opportunity there. And yeah. There's, there are people and, looking and, for work. And, and we've seen that historically. I mean in 1907 when the uh, stock market crashed and you had a depression in the United States, we had open borders with Europe. But immigration went to net zero uh, within a year because there just weren't that many opportunities here relatively. I think in the first um, decade of, of this century too, the Mexican immigration was well, net zero, wasn't it? Well, uh, from 2006 to 2010, uh, net Mexican migration to the U.S. was zero. Because the housing market where a good number of them were working because they have lower skills but it's relatively high paying, uh, collapsed in the United States. No jobs, they don't come. Mm. And you know, welfare benefits increased over that time. They didn't come for those. Um, a lot of them uh, returned. And what you see is now that the economy is recovering a little bit, you do see um, numbers of unauthorized immigrants uh, finally recovering to what they were pre-Great Recession mm -hmm. and perhaps starting to expand a little bit. And you see the same trend with legal immigration uh, both in this country historically and over time. I mean, people don't just go um, because there's not a pot of gold waiting for you the second you get into America. You have to have a job. You have to know people who are here to be able to get a job. You have to know how to go about that. Um, you have to know how to rent an apartment. You, you know, there's a lot of things you have to know, a lot of barriers, information and barriers. And then costs about things you're leaving behind. Yeah, and there's a lot of things. So it's a, it's a supply and demand. Mm -hmm. Can I ask about this, this issue, this – I mean government gives the people who are its citizens stuff. I mean that's why we, we have a government. It gives us you – know, whether that's enforcement of the laws or protections state, yeah. and some people argue it, it's obligated to give us welfare state and all of that. And how does that – how do those sorts of concerns like what a government is duty-bound to do for the people who live under it, how does that apply to this immigration issue? Because are we talking – are we – you know, we, we can make the case that we should allow people into this country but then are we then obligated to provide them with these sorts of services that government does, whether it's welfare or just access to courts or schools or police or whatever else? I mean I don't think we're bound um, to offer those things to anybody like including you know, newborns, a lot of those things um, or to new people who enter our society by whatever means. Um, I don't think the government is bound to it. I don't think that we as taxpayers are uh, obligated to supply them through our resources. Um, there then becomes a question of like what should it do, what's optimal for it to do, like what are our – you know, am I a – I'm a consequentialist utilitarian for instance. You know, I want the government to provide some access to courts. But the, the notion you're talking about is citizenship. You know, what rights, obligations, responsibilities should somebody who comes here have? Um, and citizenship is something that I am totally flexible about in terms of being able to naturalize. Um, if you want to pass a law that says we can have men, much more immigration to the U.S., but you have to live here for 40 years before you can naturalize, I think that's a totally fair trade-off. And I think that's something that almost every immigrant would want to do if it meant that they could finally come here. Nobody – well, not to say nobody, but very few people come to the United States because of the opportunity to vote in American election. <laughs> okay. Nobody thinks, oh man, I can't wait to get in there to vote for you know Romney Mitt Romney or Obama, or, yeah. Obama <laughs> or to register as a Republican or a Democrat. Like that's not why people move thousands of miles from their native cultures, their families, the places where they grew up and are comfortable with to come to the United States. They come here for economic opportunity. That explains the vast majority of immigration throughout history, with some of it being explained by like refugee and other sort of conflict. But once they get here, aren't they going to want and potentially demand a say in the policies that are then affecting? Well, they also demand schools and everything else too. Yeah. I mean, first, they want that, right? They are, and you know there are institutional limitations to what we can do currently in the United States. So we're not you're, the Plyler v. Doe decision in 1982 said that you can't. Uh, you can't, you can't exclude somebody who's an illegal immigrant or the child of an illegal immigrant from public schools. Um, the states can't. Yeah, the states can't do that. So um, you, you can't charge tuition either. So that was another issue that was brought up to try to, to cover that. Um, you can't necessarily exclude them from a lot of the courts. There are due processes open to uh, immigrants, both unlawful and lawful immigrants. A lot of unlawful immigrants do not take advantage of it because they fear the court system and the police. Um, but I think it's in our interest to at least extend some court protection to apply national defense, for instance, to the immigrants who are here in the United States. I mean we can't really separate it yeah. to do that. Some police protection. Um, but in terms of making special accommodation, no, absolutely not. And I don't think you see a lot of agitation for a lot of that stuff with the exception of some unauthorized immigrants who are here already. 
But I think the reason why you see so much agitation for it is because there is literally no way for them to do it now. So if there was a way that was long, that was difficult, that was laborious, that required tests, I don't think you'd see that because there would be a goalpost at the end of the tunnel. Now there's no goalpost. You know, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I mixed up my <laughs> metaphors there. But there's no, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. So you, I think if you provide just some of that, you'll get rid of almost all of that. And, of course, the legal, legal immigration is partially a product of how difficult it is legally, illegal immigration. They, they always – that's not a constant flow at all. The, yeah. I think if you liberalize the, the pathways that are legal immigration, then you, you don't need as much border defense, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean uh, unauthorized immigration is a substitute for uh, legal immigration. So when you make legal immigration impossible or difficult, you're going to get illegal immigration. That's just sort of the black market natural response to that. To go off the issue that Aaron said, one issue about citizenship that is important is um, um, citizenship by birth or birthright citizenship. I think that's much more important. I think that is very much worth defending and is a very important part of our institutions. I mean it goes back over a thousand, a thousand years about you know mm-hmm. common common law um, – Just sangui. Yeah, just sangui yeah. and uh, that's um, – Law, law of the blood. So we have just, just soli. So uh, law of the soil. So anybody born here that the government has jurisdiction over, which include the legal immigrants, we have jurisdiction over them. The government has jurisdiction over them because the government has power over them. That's why it deports them. Mm-hmm. So I just want to put that out there for anybody who might say otherwise. But it, it's important part of uh, cultural and civic assimilation that people born here are citizens. Mm-hmm. When you take a look at places like Germany and Japan, where you have generations of people born whose parents were unlawful immigrants who are not citizens themselves, um, they don't feel attached to the countries they're in. Um, They certainly have no access to the courts or the police. And what you see is a very high incidence of crime. You see a lot of sort of um, attachment to weird, often radical political ideologies. I'm not talking about libertarianism, but I mean like, (laughs) you know, communism or, you know, Islamist political parties that sort of – you know, uh, talk about the victims, you know, and they are victims of like a really bad legal system. So it's understandable that a lot of them would go to that. So I think birthright citizenship is like vital to long-term successful assimilation of immigrants and their descendants. Interesting. So I wanted to ask about uh, some of the people, some of the dirty backstory. This is something Alex and I have talked about before, but the backstory of some of the restrictionists of immigration. We talked about the eugenicists. Um, is, is some of the some of the reasons that people started getting anti-immigrant, but there's also the the sort of environmentalist population control people. So I asked about what's the carrying capacity of the United States, but a lot of these places uh, are people who pe- organizations who had their genesis in population control measures that some of them come from environmental concerns. Yeah, so that's one of the interesting. You know, immigration brings together a lot of different. Um, sort of uh, uh, interest groups on different sides of the issue, both for and against. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we have now is um, the three main anti-immigration groups in the United States are the Federation for American Immigration Reform, also known as FAIR, Mm -hmm. Numbers USA, and uh, and, um, the um, um, Center for Immigration Studies, CIS. Um, They all have their origins in being founded by a fellow named John Tanton, John Tanton was a – oh, he is – I think he's still alive. He's very elderly and sick right now. But um, he was an ophthalmologist in the state of Michigan. He was an avid environmentalist and part of this sort of population control environmentalism. You know, bought into the population bomb. He thought that people were destroying the natural environment. So we needed population growth restrictions. And he saw immigration as a way of uh, increasing the population of the United States. Um, now – it seems like just a distribution of population, so it wouldn't matter. But his argument was if immigrants come here and become wealthier, they're going to consume more. They're going to damage the environment more. They're going to damage the planet more. So we need to stop that. There's really wealthy people who can who do all the damaging. <laughs> yeah, that's what he's – I mean you know, it's part of this sort of anti-capitalist environmental extremism. So uh, this sort of population control environmentalism has like died out since the 70s. But this sort of – he started like these three groups in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. based off of this. So he got a lot of money and, and founded them and they've been – they were relatively unsuccessful at getting a lot of environmentalists and leftists on board. Even though Tanton himself was involved with like the Sierra Club, negative population growth, zero population growth, uh, all these different sort of environmental councils, he was relatively unsuccessful at convincing – uh, left-wingers to go along with it in terms of trying to decrease um, American immigration, sort of change their tactics in the 90s to try to focus on conservatives, and they've had a little bit more success. But 
they're really wary of the environmentalist origins of their organization, the environmentalists on the board, all this other stuff. So that that, that is sort of an interesting cultural uh, – it's about like the sociology of the anti-immigration movement in, in, in modern America is that it has a lot of its foundings in that. Now, you'll see a lot of people at these organizations, Fair CIS and Numbers USA, who are not population control advocates oh, personally. Course, yeah. I mean most of them aren't. I mean most of them are they people They may not who even are, know that the, about the origins. Well, they probably know now because uh, there's <laughs> been uh, – uh, there was a report written by a fellow named Mario Lopez earlier this year that was about this sort of exposed. I mean they got a lot of flack about it. Um, so it's just a weird sociology. I mean you have – until about the year 2000, labor unions in the United States were always opposed to immigration, always. Yeah, like it hurts every their situation. union members. Yeah, they, they yeah. think so. I mean the only way that unions can you know, bargain for higher wages above the marginal value product of their workers is by decreasing the supply of workers available to employers. So immigration, of course, increases supply. But unions are in such desperate situation – um, that they are starting to argue for immigration reform since 2000. As long as they can unionize the, the workers. As long as they can unionize in. them. But they're also – they're being deceptive about it. Um, so they want to do it to try to unionize the people who are of the same ethnic and racial groups that work in these types of jobs, who are the descendants of these immigrants, who have a more favorable uh, view. So it's partly political in terms of membership gaining in the United States. But the rhetorical difference is they're in favor of legalization and family immigration, but they're like steadfastly opposed to future worker immigration. Which is, of course, why most people come here in the first place. Yeah. So they want to amnesty everybody who's here, but they don't want anybody else to come in who could potentially work. So if I've understood everything that we've discussed so far, it's that immigration is a benefit, I mean a huge benefit to the immigrants and also a benefit to those of us who live in this country. No it's more gonna, bangers and mash. It's going to raise <laughs> GDP. It's going to help us out economically. It's going to bring these cultural goods and that the concerns that are raised against immigration are either misplaced entirely or would be better addressed by doing something other than restricting the flow of immigrants. Is that – Absolutely. I mean that's sort of the broad impact and um, – so, so where do we yeah. go from there then? I guess is that yeah. like what – aside from – you know. What are the kind of realistic next steps that we should take to address the immigration issue? Well, I think the realistic next steps are going to be some sort of a guest worker visa program to allow people to come into the country lawfully uh, going forward to work temporarily in the United States. I don't think we're ready yet to reopen. At least I have not been successful enough in convincing my fellow Americans and making the case that we should really reopen in Ellis Island. Mm -hmm. So we're not there yet. So I think you know some small baby steps like a guest worker visa program, maybe um, the idea of charging for an unlimited number of guest workers uh, visas. So charge say ten thousand dollars for a five or ten year work permit. Charge or, the immigrant or the business. charge the immigrant or the business. You know, charge anybody mm -hmm. who wants to sponsor somebody. You know, if you want to sign a contract with an employer or family or whatever to bring people over, still be better. I mean, not not the optimal solution. Certainly but it's, not. Optimal. It's so bad now. So bad now. I mean, that would be sort of like a tariff. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, some libertarian might say, "Oh, well, that's less than perfect. We shouldn't go for that." I often get that criticism a lot. But I, I like to say, you know, uh, in Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, he argued for an export tax on wool. Now, Adam Smith is like the founder of like modern free trade, how to think about like modern free trade, a huge proponent of it. He didn't argue for export taxes on wool because he thought that that was the optimal policy. He argued for it because it was an improvement over policy at the time, which was to a total ban and restriction on wool mm -hmm. exports. So he thought that as a way to get toward a marginally better policy and he was right in doing so. So I think we can do a lot of that with immigration. There's a lot of small things to along the margin that we can improve. I mean one of the benefits of moving toward a pricing system like a tariff, which I want to differentiate from an auction. Uh, you know, they're, they're pretty different things. So a pricing system, one of, the, one of the great things that moving toward that is it allows us to argue about one thing. It allows us to argue about the price that we should charge for people to come into the United States and to focus on that. Currently, if we're arguing about worker immigration, we have to argue about local prevailing wages that they're paid, the impact on Americans in this regulation. We have to argue about the types of industries and where they're located because there are different rules for different industries, whether it's zone one, two, three, or four occupations, where they are in the ONET classification, how they impact wages, and probably going forward some sort of labor market complex, labor market formula, as well as education tests. Welfare state. Uh, everything, <laughs> everything like that. So if we just focus to arguing about one thing, 
there's a lot of evidence that when this was done with trade, when they just focused on tariffs and sort of excluded quotas and everything else, you're actually argue, able to argue down the level of government restriction much more easily and effectively because there's not some sort of back way that you can increase restrictions while on the surface decreasing them. So generally speaking, we, are you optimistic about something – right now the system, would you call it broken? No, I think the system actually works as it's intended. I mean, it, it's in, highly restrictive. Highly restrictive. Yeah. So, I mean, to, to be broken, it has to do something it's not intended to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to be frank, like the number of unlawful immigrants in the United States is like relatively low compared to what you would expect given the differences in wages across countries. Mm-hmm. So, given from the restrictionist perspective, if I was a restrictionist, I'd be pretty happy because the system is working pretty well. Um, in terms of being broken, I think it's broken in the sense that it doesn't serve the best interests of Americans. I don't think it serves the best interests of immigrants, and I think it's radically out of line with our traditions of individual liberty and free markets. I want to thank our colleague Alex Narasta for joining us today on Free Thoughts, and thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can find me on Twitter at arossp. That's A R O S S P. And you can find me on Twitter at T C Burris. T C B U R R U S. And thank you again for having me on. You can find Alex Narasta at Twitter at at Alex Narasta, A-L-E-X-N-O-W-R-A-S-T-E-H. And to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.